few words about our speaker. Dr. Eric Klein is professor of classics and anthropology. He's the former chair of the Department of Classical Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and the current director of the George Washington University Capital Archaeological Institute. He's a National Geographic Explorer, a Fulbright Scholar, an NEH Public Scholar, and an award-winning teacher and author. In May 2015, he was awarded an honorary doctorate, uh, doctoral degree from Muhlenberg College. An archaeologist and ancient historian by training, Dr. Klein's primary fields um, are biblical archaeology, the military history of the Mediterranean world from antiquity to the present, and the international connections between e Greece, Egypt, and the Near East during the Late Bronze Age. He's an experienced and active field archaeologist with more than 30 seasons of excavation and survey to his credit um, since 1980 in Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Cyprus, Greece, Crete, and the United States of America. He is currently co-director of the renewed series of archaeological excavations, the site of Tel Kabri, also located in Israel. He was also a member of the Megiddo expedition, as I mentioned, in Israel, excavating at Biblical Armageddon for 10 seasons over a 20-year period from 1994 to 2014. Uh, I wanted to thank Ahuva again for recommending him here. Did you go back? What was the connection between you and, this, and, and Professor Klein? There was a connection. You go back many years. Okay, you knew each other in grade school? Okay, fine. We'll just go with that. <laughs> with that, please uh, join me in welcoming Professor Eric Klein, who had a long distance travel to make it here tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can all hear me? Great. Well, it's wonderful to be here. You have a beautiful place here. It was worth all the struggle to get here. So I did. I flew in from D.C. and I got here less than an hour ago. Yeah. I was supposed to get here at 1, but there was weather in Houston for some reason. And we circled and then ran out of gas. So we had to go to... <laughs> like, I've never heard of an airplane running out of gas before, but we had to go to New Orleans to refuel. And then by the time we got to Houston, the plane for here was just taking off. So I had to wait and then it was late. And anyway, I'm here. So, yeah. And it is very nice to be back um, in terms of being back. We actually go back to when I was a teenager, yes? I grew up in Malibu and Pacific Palisades. My dad and Winston Ho were at UCLA, and I've known Winston and Ahuva since literally when I was 10 or 15 years old. And I told them I wanted to be an archaeologist then, and so, of course, then I had to do it. Right. So anyway, it's wonderful to be back in Southern California. Uh, and it's wonderful to be lecturing tonight on this topic, uh, near and dear to my heart, 1177 BC, and uh, link in the rise of Israel. But also tomorrow during the lunch hour, I'll be uh, asking and answering some of the, the seven questions that I get most frequently, like where's Noah's Ark, where's the Ark of the Covenant, um, did the, the, where'd the 10 lost tribes go to? Uh, but I have phrased it in such a way as, to look at what other people have said and why they've gone off the tracks with it and what we can and can't know. So I'll give you um, a heads up right now that I won't actually be able to answer most of them. The only one I think I know is where the 10 lost tribes went and I don't think they were lost and they never were and I think I know where they were, but we'll talk about that at lunch tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. And then tomorrow evening, I'm doing uh, Megiddo, where I was digging from 1994 to 2014. I went from a volunteer up to the co-director uh, and then stepped away at the, after the 2014 season. I just had too much on my plate. 
but I will be uh, presenting 20 years of excavations, uh, old finds, new debates, and uh, bring you up to speed on Megiddo. But tonight what I want to talk about is the collapse of civilizations at the end of the Late Bronze Age. It comes from a book that I published a couple of years ago on 1177 BC. Uh, and it seems to have resonated with the general populace because there are in fact some parallels to today, which might be a bit surprising since that was 3,200 years ago. And yet I think we do have some things that are not too unsimilar. But, um, to begin at the beginning with the Exodus and my good friend Charlton Heston. <laughs> Actually, I was once on an airplane and I was three rows behind him and I sent a note via the flight attendant asking him if we could chat because I had some issues with the way he had <laughs> been in the movie. He never once turned around, so. I never got to tell them what I thought, but at any rate, the uh, Exodus is um, familiar to most of you, I presume. Um, one of the questions, though, that we've got in archaeology is the date of when it happened, and in fact, the question of if it happened, as the Bible says, and this is a whole other set of debates in a, a week-long series at some point, um, and even it's been a new movie. Anybody see the new movie, The Gods and Kings? Yeah, did you like it? Was it okay? Uh, I thought Charlton Heston was better. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem that we've got here in terms of trying to date the Exodus is that if you look at the biblical, biblical account and you count up the years, the Exodus should have taken place back in about 1450 BC. The problem with that is that the Egyptians in charge at that time, uh, Tutmosis III was one of the most powerful Egyptian pharaohs that ever ruled, and it is unlikely that he would have allowed them to do that. The archeological evidence seems to point to a period of about 200 years later, about 1250 BC, and this is when Ramses II is ruling, and of course he's usually called the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But in fact, in the biblical account, they never actually name the Pharaoh. So that's up in the air as well. The one thing that we do know is that there is a group, a people known as, as Israel, in the land of Canaan by about 1207 BC. And we know this because of the Israel Stele by Merneptah that uh, Sir William Flinders Matthew Petrie found in 1896. He has the best name in archeology, span right? I wanted to name uh, my firstborn uh, after him. Uh, my wife objected. So our firstborn is in fact Hannah, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie, client. I jest, but that is in fact how she introduces herself. So at any rate, on this inscription uh, down in the bottom couple of lines, it says Israel is laid waste, his seed is not. And so we know that by the fifth year of Merneptah's reign, which is about 1207, that a group of people known of, as Israel are in the land. So the Exodus must have taken place at some point before then, at least, what, 40 years earlier. So that gets us to about 1250 BC. But what has bothered me all these years is not so much if it happened or when it happened, but how it happened. How on earth could this ragtag band of uh, people coming from wherever take over the established Canaanite powers? Now, of course, it depends on how many people you think were involved. Right? If you go with 600,000 fighting men, then you're talking about two and a half million people, which is not so ragtag, but never mind. 
The Canaanites at this time were extremely well established, and so I've always wanted to know how on earth were the Israelites able to take over in this area. And I think now I've got the answer, but in order to show it to you, I've got to bring you the larger context. So that's what we'll spend most of tonight doing, and then I'll come back to this and show you how it all fits in. So we're gonna be talking about the Late Bronze Age. This is the period from 1700 to 1200 BC. This is the period that I would most have liked to have lived. I'm sure I wouldn't have survived more than about 24 or 48 hours, but it would have been a lot of fun. Uh, this is the time period when we have what I call the G8 of the ancient world. So you've got Mycenaeans and Minoans in Greece. You've got the Hittites in Turkey. You have the Canaanites in Canaan, of course. Um, Cypriots are living in Cyprus. You've got the Assyrians and the Babylonians over in Mesopotamia. And of course, you've got the Egyptians. Now, many of you may think that you know nothing about this period, but in fact, you do know more than you think already uh, because you know some of the people uh, that lived back then and the events that took place. So for example, Hatshepsut, the famous female pharaoh, anybody heard of her? All right, so she's in this time period. Um, Tutmosis III, her stepson, uh, is at this period. Amenhotep, um, how about Akhenaten? Amenhotep and Akhenaten, right, the heretic pharaoh? All right, they're all in this period. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Anybody ever heard of this guy, King Tut? Yeah, okay, so he's in this period as well. In fact, I can date myself. I went to the show that was at the LA County Museum of Art back in, anybody else go to that in the 76, 77, something like that? Yeah, my parents allowed me, I went to Santa Monica High School, my parents allowed me to play hooky for that day and go to the show, so I've always remembered that. So King Tut, Ramses II, and the star of our show, Ramses III, are all at this time period. And this is also uh, when we've got the Battle of Kadesh, it's also when we have the Trojan War, and as I say, it's also when we've got the Exodus. So, what we have at this time, and one of the reasons why I say it's more similar to today than you might expect, is that everybody's in contact with everybody else. For that particular time period, it was globalized. Now it's not globalized like we are today where you've got a you know, tidal wave in Japan and it affects the New York stock market 10 minutes later. But for the area from say Italy on the west to Afghanistan on the east and from Turkey down to Egypt, they were in constant communication with each other that whole time. Now, this is a diagram, my wife actually made it up. It's a small, it's a small world diagram, social network analysis. Uh, some of you may have heard of this game that people play, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right, with all the movies, right? Same thing here, that if you don't know someone, you know someone who knows someone, or if you don't know that, you know one who knows one. Nobody is more than three or four steps away from any other person. So if the Mycenaeans are not directly trading with the Assyrians, they are trading with the Cypriots who are trading with the Assyrians. And so you've got this small world as you can see it here. Now that's important I think because they're not self-sufficient. They're all trading. They all need raw materials. They all trade finished goods around. And so when one collapses, it's going to affect the others. Right, and so that is, in fact, what is gonna happen just after 1200 BC. So let me give you one example. I said that this is the Late Bronze Age. 
Bronze Age actually goes from about 3000 BC down to 1100 or 1000 BC. It's the early Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age. And we're looking at the Late Bronze Age, this period from 1700 on. Now, as you can see from the slide, the way you make bronze is copper plus tin. 90% copper, 10% tin. If you don't have tin, you can use arsenic if you have to. Not sure I recommend it. You won't live very long if you're putting arsenic into your copper, but you could do that. Now, the copper is going to come from Cyprus. That's not a problem. 90% of, of the copper at this time is coming from Cyprus. And in fact, that's where the name comes from. Kypros means copper. It's the tin that's the problem back then. You could get a little bit in southeastern or southwestern Turkey. You could get maybe even going up to Cornwall, though they didn't do that very much. Most of the tin came from Afghanistan. In fact, specifically the Badakhshan region of Afghanistan. Uh, and that tin is not the only thing that comes from there. Anybody here have lapis lazuli jewelry of some sort? Okay, same area. Also the Badakhshan region of Afghanistan. So tin and lapis are both coming from there. Now, the tin is going to come overland. And we know this from a letter found at the site of Mari, which is on the Euphrates in Syria. I'm not sure that Mari exists anymore. ISIS took it over, and last I heard, they were busy bulldozing it for antiquities. But when the French were there, they found an archive of tablets. And in those tablets, one of them talks about tin coming across to Mari, and there's Mari right there, and then going over to Ugarit on the coast, the North Syrian coast, and then from there going over to Crete. So we know that the tin is traveling hundreds if not thousands of miles back then, and it makes its way over to where the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and everybody else are using it. So what happens if this is cut at any point? Which is in fact, I think, exactly what happened right after 1200 BC. Now, tin for them is the equivalent of oil for us today. In fact, that's what a friend of mine, Carol Bell in England said, that the quest for tin and the uh, ability to keep the roots safe would have been as important back then to the kings and the rulers as oil is to the president and the rulers today. So uh, that's another analogy I would make to today. Now, in terms of the cities we're talking about, let me just show you, we've got Mycenae on mainland Greece. This is the type site for the Mycenaeans. We've got Knossos on Crete. I dare say some of you have been there. Anybody been over to Crete and Greece? Uh, if not, we should do a field trip as well. Right, go to Megiddo and then go to the, the Greek islands. Right, stop at Santorini, why not? Right. Uh, we've also got Troy. Uh, anybody been to Troy? Yeah, Troy's amazing. Right, and the Trojan War is going to take place right at this time period. Uh, also, Hattusas in the middle of Turkey. I dare say not many people have been there. I've only been there once, but it's an absolutely gorgeous site. Capital city of the Hittites. And then uh, Ugar, which we will talk about tonight, which uh, is on the north coast of Syria, lots of tablets there. And then Hatsor in Israel, right? And Hatsor, these are all gonna be destroyed at this one time period. So what happens basically is for most of the late Bronze Age, we have a globalized society that's very happily and merrily ticking along. Everybody's trading with everybody else. Everybody's getting along. They're exchanging daughters. They're signing treaties. I mean, everything's going quite well. 
Uh, and then into this mix, a little bit of chaos gets tossed. And uh, invoking chaos theory, if one little thing goes wrong, it can disrupt the entire system. And that is, in fact, what happens here. So one by one, and in fact, very quickly, all these civilizations, that whole G8 that I mentioned, wink out one by one. No more Minoans, no more Mycenaeans, no more Hittites, no more Canaanites, no more Cypriots. The only civilization that really survives are the Egyptians. And even they are so weakened that they're never the same again. And in fact, they probably at this time pull out from Canaan, which, to give away my ending, is going to allow then the Israelites to settle in that region. So the Egyptians, even though they survive this, are going to be so weakened that they're never quite the same again. So what we get is a collapse, 1200 BC. It's a huge collapse. Everything you see on this map basically goes down to smithereens, and we end up with a dark age afterward for a couple of hundred years. This is a collapse such as the world has never seen before and really won't see again until the Roman Empire falls. And of course, the Roman Empire is going to fall in the 5th century AD, right, 476. So we're a good 1,500 years ahead of that. So one of the things that uh, I wanted to do in the book that I wrote about this was to show not just how and why it collapsed, but what collapsed, because they lost amazing amounts. Uh, they forgot how to write for a while. They forgot how to build large buildings. They basically lost all the hallmarks of civilization. But the big question for all the archaeologists is what caused this? Now, the original hypothesis was that a group called the Sea Peoples had ended this, and we knew this from the Egyptian records. And in fact, the Egyptians say that a group, or rather a number of groups that they lumped together, came through twice in 1207 and 1177 BC. Now, of course, those are our numbers. What they really said was in the fifth year of Merneptah and in the eighth year of Ramses III, they fought a number of groups, and they tell us the names, that came from across the sea and were invading Egypt. So the fifth year of Merneptah is going to be 1207, and the eighth year of Ramses is 1177. Interestingly, the Israel stele of Merneptah that mentions Israel that's from the same year. That's from the fifth year also, from 1207. And I'm not so sure that's a coincidence. I think it might be related. At any rate, this is what they say um, in various inscriptions. They talk about the um, Equesh, the Teresh, the Luca, the Shardana, the Shekelesh, northerners coming from all lands. And in fact, they name six groups the, five, the first time and five groups the second time. Two of the groups are the same, the Shardan and the Shekelesh. We've got a total of nine groups that come twice over 30 years. Now, the name for them, the Sea Peoples, is what we call them. The Egyptians don't call them that. They actually give them these, these names. But starting in about 1850, a famous Egyptian, a French Egyptologist, Gaston Maspero, he said these are the Sea Peoples, and they brought the Bronze Age to an end, and ever since then, that's what people have said. Even though when he first came up with the idea in the 1850s and 1860s, he had no proof for it except for the Egyptian records. Still, that has stuck with us. So I actually think that the Sea Peoples have been given kind of a, uh, a bad name here. They're like the bogeyman. But the main um, information we've got is from this wall 
at Mednet Habu, which is the mortuary temple of Ramses III. It's right near King Tut's tomb, if anybody's been there. And on this wall, kind of blurry here, he mentions both a land battle and a sea battle against this group, uh, a naval battle and a land battle. And he says, the foreign lands made a conspiracy in their islands. All at once, the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before their arms. And then he tells us all the countries that have been destroyed already. He says, from Hate, we know that. That's the Hittites. That's Hattusas. Kode, that's down in southeastern Turkey. Karkamesh, that's over in Syria. Artsuwa, that's the western coast of Turkey. And Alashia, that's Cyprus. All of these places, he says, have been overrun by these sea peoples. And they even set up a camp in Amur. Amur is Amuru, that's the northern coast of Syria, right by Ugarit. He says, they were coming forward toward Egypt. A flame was prepared before them. Their confederation was the Peleset, the Tajekur, the Shekles, the Denyan, and the Weshesh. So he names these other groups that have come. This is from 1177. And he says that he destroyed them. He slew the Denyan, who are in their islands. The Tajekur and the Peleset were made ashes. So we know what they look like because he actually has pictures of them. This is what the Sea Peoples look like. In fact. If anybody wants your kids to dress up as sea peoples, it's very easy to know uh, what they should look like if you go to a costume party and you want to dress up yourself. It's actually the easiest way to do it is just cut out a bunch of the letter C's and stick it all over your clothes, right? That was in graduate school too. My friends went dressed for Halloween that way and they had like between 50 and 100 letter C's. I said, what are you guys? They said, we're sea peoples. <laughs> they won first prize. I think they spent $2 on their costume. At any rate, we know what they look like, but the problem is that we don't know where they come from. And in fact, we don't know where they go to. I was talking to a reporter a couple of weeks ago and they said to me, if somebody gave you a million dollars and said you could do anything in archeology, span I said, stop right there, I'll take it. And he's like, no, 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 what would you do with it? And I said, I would go looking for the Sea Peoples because we don't actually know where they come from. The Egyptians do say that when they beat them, they settled them in Egypt and in their strongholds. So I do think they wound up in Egypt and, and the region of Canaan, but where they come from is a whole nother problem. And so archeologists have been playing linguistic games for more than 150 years. The Shardana, can you name me any place in the Mediterranean that has a similar name in terms of consonants? Sardinia, absolutely. So people have suggested that the Shardana may have come from Sardinia. What about Shekelesh? Any place in the Mediterranean with similar letters? How about Sicily? Yeah, perhaps Sicily. So we're in the Western Mediterranean there. How about Tajekur? That's a tough one. It might be the Troad right around Troy, but we're not sure. The Denyan, people have suggested these are Homer's Danans. Right, also known as the Achaeans, so maybe we've got people from Mycenae. The Weshesh, not sure, maybe in the region of Troy as well. The only one that we're sure of is the Peleset. Who are the Peleset? Philistines. And the Bible says the Philistines come from Crete. So this may actually fit in. So what people have suggested is that this group, this wave, started in the Western Mediterranean, Sicily and Sardinia and Italy, swept across the Mediterranean, overrunning Greece and Turkey and Cyprus and then Canaan and made their way to Egypt where they finally lost. And they did that not once, 
but twice. So that was the hypothesis, shall we say, for many, many, many decades. Now in terms of how much of this is correct, well, the one thing we do know from archeology span uh, is that there are sites like Tel el-Safi, where Ahuva digs, right, where they have Philistines, uh, Ashkelon, uh, Gaza, Gath, Gath is Safi, so we have Philistine cities. In fact, there is the Philistine Pentapolis that it's called, right? And of course, we've got um, our Israelites fighting against the Philistines, David and Goliath and all of that. But archaeologically, we've got them. And their pottery, which you see here on the right of that screen, the pottery looks like what I would call degenerate Mycenaean. That is, it's pottery that looks like it was made in Greece by the Mycenaeans, but now it's being made with local clays, and by local I mean clay from Rhodes or Cyprus or even where Israel is today. So it looks like people from Greece have come over and are trying to make the same pots that they always made, but now they're using local clay. So the Philistines are thought to be from the Aegean, and I think the archeological evidence does tend to support that. But finds are being made every day. In fact, just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Ashkelon announced that they have a Philistine cemetery with 260 bodies that they've unearthed. I don't know how they kept it secret for three years. I'm actually pissed at my colleagues. Somebody should have told me. Right, but for three years they kept it a secret. I saw them at the meetings. They're like, oh, we know something you don't know. <laughs> at any rate, there is a Philistine cemetery that's just been announced from Ashkelon, and they are now doing DNA analysis and strontium isotope analysis, which should tell us the ancestry and where the people grew up. The one thing is that the cemetery dates from a little bit later. It's like the 11th century or the 10th century. So it's not these sea peoples, but it's their descendants that settled down. So I think the DNA might tell us if they came from Greece. The strontium isotope, uh, which just tells you uh, where you grew up as your teeth were forming, and I think they're local, so that's not gonna tell us much, but the DNA might tell us. So Philistines, part of the Sea Peoples, and we do think we know who they are. Uh, and in fact, this is a group. The Egyptians give us a picture of these people as they come in, and they're not just raiders that come in and torch the place and leave again. These are families that are moving. You've got here an ox cart with the family, wife, kids, family belongings. This is a migration. So what we should think of the Sea Peoples is not guys out for a weekend marauding sprint, but actually a migration of families. Think 1930s, think Dust Bowl, people leaving from Oklahoma and coming out to California. That's what we've got here. So one of the questions is, what starts them moving? And people had said for a very long time that, well, there must have been a drought somewhere, and that led to famine, and that led to them moving, and then they cut the trade routes, and then that toppled all the civilizations. And there may be something to that, but I think it, that is a little bit too simple. So I actually think it's much, much, much messier. I do think that drought plays a role. I do think famine plays a role. Migration plays a role. But they all play a role. They are all stressors in what is going to happen. So in terms of what really happened, I think we have to look pretty much at everything. So people have suggested over the years, as I just mentioned, that there was a drought, that there were famine, that there was migration. I would say that all happened, but I would also toss in earthquakes just for good measure. I mean, why not? Uh, 
And the reason why is because we now have evidence for all of these things. So set the sea peoples aside for just a moment because I do think they've been blamed for far more than they actually did. I actually think that there are other things going on at this time. So for example, drought. Yes, there is a drought going on at this time. People had thought that, um, well, this is Reese Carpenter from the 1960s. He taught at Bryn Mawr. He thought the Mycenaeans had come to an end because of drought, but it was just a hypothesis. He didn't have the data to prove it. So it remained a hypothesis, and then it kind of got forgotten for a while. But in fact, it looks like he was correct. And in the last five years, we've had three or four different studies that have shown conclusively that there was a drought back then. So for instance, Kaniuski, who uh, works out of France, came over and in the um, northern part of Syria, he tested a dried up lagoon and lakes, did a pollen core, and found that the plants, the pollen that he found, suggested that there was what he calls a 300 year long dry event. In other words, a drought, which lasted from about 1200 down to 900 in North Syria. He also went to Cyprus, tested the lagoon by Halas Sultanteki, also found a dry event, which also lasted about 300 years. And then a friend of mine, Lee Drake, did the same thing for Greece uh, and found that the surface of the sea, the temperature had changed, which leads to less rain on Greece. And then in Israel itself, Daphne Langut, you can see her in the bottom right there, and uh, Israel Finkelstein, my colleague at Megiddo, and uh, Thomas Litt from Germany, they took samples from the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, looked at the pollen, and said that they had evidence for a drought also. Shorter, 150 years, not 300 years, but a drought in Israel as well. So now we've got evidence from North Syria, Israel, Cyprus, and Greece that there was a drought at about this time. And of course, every time they any one of these groups announced with their findings, the newspapers got a hold of it. So here's the New York Times talking about pollen study points to drought as culprit in Bronze Age demise. The LA Times got into it. Climate change may have caused demise of late Bronze Age. National Geographic, archeology, span New York Post got into it and they pulled in globalization just for good measure as well. And so the end result is that people suddenly became aware that drought and famine, which they translated into climate change, had happened 3,200 years ago. And then, of course, uh, they talked about whether we're going to collapse or not. So I had a piece in the Huffington Post about that. Now, what about famine, though? We've got scientific evidence for drought, but famine is much harder to find unless you've got mass graves or things like that. Um, the one thing we can get, though, is written evidence. If the people are suffering from uh, famine, they will write about it, or at least the survivors will, and that's exactly what happens at Ugarit, the city on the north coast of Syria. We have one tablet, for example, from a merchant. His name is Ortenu. We've got all of his archives. And uh, he ran a business that had um, satellite offices in inland Syria at a place called Imar. And one of his representatives in Imar writes back to Ugarit and says, there is famine in our house. We will all die of hunger. If you don't arrive here quickly, we ourselves will die of hunger. You will not see a living soul from your land. 
So good evidence for famine? I think so. They're not real happy there. Um, in Ugarit itself, the king writes, here with me plenty has become famine. And up in Turkey, in Anatolia, the Hittite king, do you not know that there was a famine in the midst of my lands? It's a matter of life and death. So along with the drought, we've definitely got famine. And when you have that, then you do get groups that start migrating. So invaders, perhaps, but also internal rebellion. If your peasants and the lower class are starving, they may rebel. Think 99% overthrowing the 1%. And it's frequently tough to tell the destructions apart. Text can also come to the rescue here. This is one text that we've got in Ugar that talks about foreign ships having been sighted. And he says, uh, if you see any more ships, let me know. The problem is we don't know if this text was actually sent or not before the enemy ships came back because the city is destroyed. And it's destroyed by humans. And we know this because there are arrowheads in the walls along with three feet of ash and destruction. Now, we've also got one of the last letters from Mugarit. When your messenger arrived, the army was already humiliated. The city, city was sacked. Our food was burnt. The vineyards destroyed. Our city is sacked. May you know it. May you know it. So here I think we've got human agency. Whether it's the Sea Peoples or somebody else, we've got human attackers. Right, and in fact, where Kaniuski did his first pollen, they found a level of destruction which he promptly called Sea Peoples. But there's actually no proof it's the Sea Peoples, it's just somebody destroyed it somewhere about 1185 BC. Let me give you one example in terms of the problems here. Canaanite Hatsor, right, the queen city of the Canaanites. We know that this city is destroyed round about 1200 BC. We know it because Amnon ben Tor and Sharon Zuckerman have excavated it, and you're looking here at some of the remains of the palace where the mud bricks are burnt to a crisp. They're bright red now and brown and black, not looking quite like they, they should. The problem is that even though we know it's destroyed, we don't know who did it, and we're not quite sure when, somewhere between 1250, 1230, 1180, somewhere in there. They did just find some jars of grain, and they should be able to radiocarbon date those, and then we can figure this out. But in terms of who had actually captured it and destroyed it, Amnon ben Tor, he had said, well, it's not Egyptians, and it's not Canaanites. And the reason he knew this is because in the destruction level, there were some statues, stone statues, and they were mutilated. Some of them were Egyptian, and so he said Egyptian soldiers would never have mutilated Egyptian statues, so it can't be the Egyptians. Some of them were Canaanite statues, and they were mutilated. And he said, okay, it's not the Canaanites, because they wouldn't have mutilated. That leaves, he said, the Israelites and the Sea Peoples. He says it's not the Sea Peoples, because it's too far inland, which I would disagree with. The Sea Peoples got very far inland, but never mind. So for Ben Tor, that left just the Israelites and the story of the capture of Hatsor, which in the Bible is the only one of the cities that the Israelites actually burned to the ground. Right? It actually says that. So for Ben Tor, the destruction of Hatsor is a confirmation of the biblical account. But his co-director, Sharon Zuckerman, who just uh, passed away a year or so ago, unfortunately, but she said, Amnon, look at what's destroyed at the site. And he says, what are you talking about? She said, the temples are destroyed and the palace is destroyed. 
but the places where the people are living are not, and the workshops, the workshops are not. And he says, so what? She says, that's what happens when you have an internal rebellion and the lower classes rise up. They torch the places that the upper elite are living in, but they leave their places alone. She said, this is not the sea people. This is an internal rebellion by the lower classes of Hatsor. Now, there's no way to prove it either way. My point very simply is, if the two co-directors of the site can't even agree on who destroyed their site, it's even harder for us as outsiders to figure it out. All we can say is that the city is destroyed. But in the case of Hatsor, as far as I know, there's not even any weapons. So I'm not even sure that it was humans that did it, because it could have been Mother Nature. It could have been an earthquake. Because Israel, and in particular that region, is sitting on an active seismic zone. Right now, I don't have to tell you guys about earthquakes, right? You know from earthquakes, right? Having grown up here, I, I know all about them as well. Most of the sites that we're talking about that were destroyed in 1200 BC are actually sitting on um, various fault lines. So for instance, this is a map of all the earthquakes that have taken place in Turkey since 1900, just the last century or so. Most of the cities are sitting right on top of them. So I actually suspect that quite a few of the destructions are by Mother Nature in the forms of earthquakes rather than by humans. So for instance, right across the top of Turkey, we've got the North Anatolian fault line. We've got other fault lines coming down off the coast of Greece. We've got a big one coming right up the Rift Valley, right up through the Dead Sea and all of that. And um, they're still active even today. And what we get both now and back then are what the seismologists call sequences or storms. That is, if you have an earthquake, but it's not the big one, and it doesn't release all the pressure, you will get another earthquake right next to it sometime later. It might be a couple days, might be a couple weeks, might be a year, but you will get another earthquake. And if that earthquake does not release all of the pressure, you'll get another earthquake. And so on down the line until the entire fault line is unzipped. And it can take up to 60 years to do this. Once the whole thing is unzipped, it then takes like another 400 years to build the pressure back up. Now, in modern times, in modern times, the seismologists call this an earthquake sequence. But they also suggest that if it happens today, it probably happened back then. And back then, they call them earthquake storms. Now, Amos Knorr, who's uh, at Stanford, and I put our heads together back in about 1998, 2000, and looked at all the sites. And we think that there was an earthquake storm that went on from about 1225 to 1175. And one of the reasons why we think that is because at most of these sites there is earthquake damage. So for instance, we're looking here at the entrance to Mycenae, the famous Lion Gate. And everybody always looks at the gate itself right here. Let's see if I've got it, let me go back. Right, there's the lions there. But notice off to the left here, that scarp that's underneath the big wall. Amos Knorr took a look at that and he's like, oh, that's one half of an earthquake fault zone. They built their city on top of a major earthquake zone. And he's like, who would build their city on top of an earthquake zone? And he's like, oh wait, I'm at Stanford. Yeah, San Andreas, San Francisco, yeah, okay. So it happens, it does happen. And in fact, at Mycenae, we've got here a number of victims. This is a young woman who was uh, killed. 
that's actually the same person in both. And that rock that you see off to the right here was actually embedded in her skull. And the archaeologists took it off as they were excavating. She was in the basement. She was doing what you're supposed to. She was sheltering underneath a doorway, which is supposed to be the safest place in the house, except that the doorway collapsed on her and she was killed. So Mycenae's got earthquake victims. Right down the road at Tiryns, which is less than like three miles away, we also have uh, a woman and a couple of kids that are um, underneath a fallen wall. At Troy, you can see that wall that's tilted over. Trust me, it's not supposed to look like that. That's what happens in an earthquake. And uh, this is the way it looked when I was there just a year or so ago. Even at Ugarit itself, you can see how squiggly this wall looks. So there was uh, earthquake damage at this time as well. And so I suspect that some of the things we blame the Sea Peoples for are in fact Mother Nature. So along with this then, we have the cutting of the trade routes as well. And I don't want to spend that much time on this, but just to give you an idea again at how globalized they were, we saw the tin and copper, but we've also got shipwrecks from this time period. The Ulubrun ship off the coast of Turkey sank in about 1300 BC, and this particular ship had goods from seven different civilizations on it. It is a microcosm of the trade that was going on at that point. So here they are, they're about 140 feet down. They could only dive on the wreck twice a day for 20 minutes each time. It has a series of stone anchors going right down the middle. It's about 14 anchors on here. Every time they lost one, they would just bring another one up and use it. But what the ship was really known for are the copper ingots that are on board. These are 100%, 99% pure copper from Cyprus. There's more than 300 of these ingots. They're all in what we call an oxide shape, so you can carry it on your shoulder quite easily. Uh, these 300 ingots weigh about 10 tons. There's also one ton of tin on board. So you've got that 90%, 10%. There is enough copper and tin on board here to outfit an army of 300 people with swords, shields, helmets, everything you needed, right? So right there, when this ship went down, somebody lost a major fortune and somebody might have lost a war as well. So. The other things that are on board though, um, there's tin up in the top left there. It's some of it in little ingots, some not. Down on the lower here are, is terebinth resin. Terebinth resin comes from the pistachio tree. You use it in things like perfume. There is one ton of terebinth resin on board this ship. We've also got raw ivory, both, both elephant and hippopotamus. Up top here, my personal favorite, ingots of raw glass. And the raw glass is colored. This is colored with cobalt, so it's blue. But there's also pink glass, yellow glass, brown glass, a rose sort of glass. Absolutely gorgeous. And when they did the analysis, uh, the Corning Museum of Glass analyzed these. It matched perfectly the glass both in New Kingdom Egypt, like King Tut's tomb, and Mycenaean Greece. So they're all getting their glass from the same area at that time. And then down bottom here in the lower right, brand new unused pottery from Cyprus and Canaan, which is being shipped probably the whole thing over to Greece. 
And the ship is either going around and around and around, or it's being sent from one port to another. We just don't know. Um, nearest we can think of is that it's going to Greece. That's probably true because there's nothing on board that's brand new and for sale from Greece. So we think they're headed there with all these goods from the Near East. But for me, this ship really encapsulates the globalization at that time period. And we actually have uh, written text about that as well. Here's the text again from Ugarit, which dates from about 40 years after the Ulubarun ship went down. It's called the Sinaranu text because it mentions a merchant named Sinaranu. It says, from the present day, Amostamru, son of Nikmepa, king of Ugarit, exempts Sinaranu, son of Siginu. And I really wanted to name our second born one of these names. My wife refused, I don't know. So we wound up with a Hannah and a Joshua. But I wanted Petrie and, you know, <laughs> Sinaranu. I thought he would have been the only Sinaranu in the entire kindergarten class, right? <laughs> but at any rate, the text says, his grain, his beer, his olive oil, to the palace he shall not deliver. His ship is exempt when it arrives from Crete. So you have a guy on the coast of North Syria in the city of Ugarit sending a ship all the way to Crete, and then it's coming back and bringing grain and olive oil and beer. And when it gets back, he doesn't have to pay taxes. He is exempt. I think this is probably the earliest corporate tax exemption in history. Can't prove it, but I think so. So we've got the actual Ulubrun ship on the floor of the sea, which sank, and we've got these. So we know that they are sending these around. Okay, so at the end, after 1200, all that gets cut. It all goes away. So let me begin to sum up by presenting three points that I think you will all agree with, and then I will try and put it into the larger context. So we've been talking about the fact that we've got a number of separate civilizations, Minoans, Mycenaeans, Hittites, Cypriots, Canaanites, uh, Egyptians, they're all independent, but they're interacting with each other, right? If, if we have enough to go on that you would agree with that? Okay. Point number two then, it's clear that many cities are destroyed and that life as they knew it came to an end. Would you agree with that? Okay. And third, we don't know why it happened. There is no proof for it, no unequivocal proof. We know that it all happened. We don't exactly know why. Again, I would guess you would agree with that, right? So what we've got then, the scholars out there, and I heard this at a meeting just last November, they're still going with the old drought to famine to movement to cutting of the sea people to, of the international trade. And I think reality was probably much messier. It's always much messier. So if you ask me if there were droughts involved, I would say yes. If you ask me if there were famine involved, I would say yes. Earthquakes, yes. Invaders, yes. Rebellions, yes. I think they all were. In fact, I think that's why the Late Bronze Age came to an end, because they were so intertwined that it kind of became like a domino effect. If one went down, the others went down. But you know, fout, uh, famine is not enough to bring down a civilization. People survive. Drought's not enough, people survive. Even earthquakes, people survive earthquakes. Invaders, people survive. But what if you get one, and then two, and then three, and then four, right? And it's kind of like, you know, if you had an earthquake, it would have been enough, right, Dahenu? 
If you had a famine, it would have been enough. If you had a drought, you know, you just keep going with the Dianus. But what if you've got like four or five of them, right? What if you have famine and drought and invaders and earthquakes? At some point you go, all right, all right, I give up. And I think that's what happens. I think there is a perfect storm here. And the thing is, when you get one, nation, one natural disaster on top of another, you also get what's called a multiplier effect, that things get much worse, worse than if they had just happened by themselves. So I think that's what goes on at this point. And what it turns out is we have something called a systems collapse. That's what ends up happening. The system collapses. The central economy goes away. The elites get destroyed. You know, only the top 1% knew how to read and write back then anyway. So once they go away, you lose the art of writing. You've even got um, the population shifts and the settlement goes away. So the thing about this is that it can take up to a century. And this is a known fact. It's happened in a number of places at a number of times. System collapse can take up to a century. So the world in 1200 was different from the world in 1100, which was very different from the world in 1000. By the time we get to, say, 1000 BC, everything that they knew back in the late Bronze Age was gone. Everything was empty. It was time for a change. Now, so what can we learn from all of this? Well, first of all, to compare it to today, like I said at the beginning, I think there's more parallels than we might think. So today, are we facing something similar to what they had back in 1177? Climate change, anybody? We can talk about that till the cows come home, right? But many people would say yes. Famines and droughts in the world these days? Yep. Uh, earthquakes? Yep. Rebellions? Yep. I think the only thing missing are the sea peoples. <laughs> and actually, I think we've even got them now. My only question is, which ones are they? You could argue that ISIS are the sea peoples because they're destroying everything. You could also argue the refugees in Europe are the sea peoples. They haven't turned violent yet, but what if they did? So I actually think we've got the sea peoples as well. And in fact, um, recent news in the last, say, three or four years from the Mediterranean, Greece's economy is tanked. Internal rebellions in Libya, Egypt, and Syria. Turkey is afraid it's going to become involved. And look at the almost coup that just happened. Israel is afraid it's going to be involved. Jordan's crowded with refugees. That's the recent news. Iran is bellicose and threatening. Iraq is in turmoil. Well, if we had headlines from about 1200 BC, guess what they would have said? Pretty much the same thing. So I think we actually have a similar situation now. There is a big difference. We know what's going on today and we can actually make changes, but I think that there's more similarity than uh, differences. And that brings me then back to my primary question. How were the Israelites able to take over Canaan and establish themselves in the land, which we know they did? And I think you know the answer as well as I do now. Very simply, there was a power vacuum that by the time they tried to establish themselves, all of the late Bronze Age powers were gone. The Canaanites were no longer a power anymore. Uh, the Sea Peoples and whatever else had wiped them out. And so they're able to move right on in and take over. I think that if the late Bronze Age had not come to an end, there's no way they would have been able to do it. 
but as it was when they waltzed in, everything that had been there was destroyed. And so I suspect that maybe when they walked into Hatsor, it was already a smoking ruin. At least that's one way to explain it. So this, for me, solves a nice little problem uh, because when you end the Late Bronze Age, you basically are saying out with the old, and then all of a sudden, right on the heels, you've got in with the new, because you've got Phoenicians, Philistines, Israelites, and then eventually you're gonna get Greece, you're gonna get democracy, monotheism, courtesy of the various things. And so sometimes it really does take a wildfire to clear off the old growth and let new things flourish. And I think that's what we've got here. So the first millennium sees all kinds of new things, including Israel and including Greece, which gives us the democracy today. So had the late Bronze Age not fallen, we might still be speaking and writing in Akkadian today, and who knows what we would be worshiping. But things fell as they did, and we are here today. With that, I thank you. If you'll entertain questions. One thing that fascinates me about what you said is, I've heard many, many times that there's no archeological evidence for the Exodus. Your whole presentation almost assumes the Exodus. You mentioned a couple of times some evidence of the Exodus. So this, this mantra that we hear that there's no archeological evidence for the Exodus, is that just wrong? Is there archeological evidence? Should we be assuming that it actually did occur? Do you believe it occurred? <laughs> Lots of questions here. So do we actually have archeological evidence for the Exodus and do I believe it occurred basically? Um, the short answer to start with the second one is I think something occurred. I'm not sure if it's quite the way the Bible says it, but you've got to get Israelites into Canaan somehow. Whether they were already there, like Finkelstein thinks, or whether they came out as an exodus, I kind of like the idea of dribbing and drabbing over the decades and the centuries coming out in a couple dozen here, a couple dozen there. My problem is that we don't see any mention of the Israelites in Canaan before the Merneptah So if they are already there, they're invisible. Um, in terms of the archeological evidence, it's problematic. What I'm showing is lots of destructions and all of that, which is why the archeologists want to put the Exodus at 1250 BC, because it fits with the pattern of destruction. But the problem too is, as I showed, we don't actually know who did the destruction. So in terms of actual Israelites, there are no signs that say Israelites were here. Um, and we don't even have evidence like camping in the wilderness for 40 years. This is part of the problem. On the other hand, people have said, how would you find evidence for nomadic people? If they're pitching tents, are you gonna find the holes that they put the tent posts in? And the answer is actually yes, <laughs> you would. We found them from Bedouin nomadic camps and yet we don't have any there. So the, the, the simple answer actually is we have no evidence that screams Exodus yet. We have a lot of circumstantial evidence that things were destroyed at that time, which to my mind allowed the Israelites to take root where they wouldn't have before. 
but it is definitely an open question. And one of the wonderful things about archeology span is somebody could discover something tomorrow that answers our question. So I'm always waiting for tomorrow so far. When you were going through the different factors that could have led to the destruction, including the rebellion and the earthquakes, um, one question I had is when you start talking about earthquakes, it didn't seem to me that earthquakes would account for why the homes and the temples of the wealthy were destroyed and those of the lower classes not. Unless, of course, there was some architectural difference between what the lower class were living in and what the rich were living in. Was there that would account for the destruction of the wealthier homes and, and no sign of destruction of the lower class? Right, so differences in architecture between upper class and lower class, and would that have been affected by an earthquake? Um, the short answer is no, there weren't substantial differences. So if an earthquake is going to destroy the one set, they would have destroyed the other. And in fact, that's what we see at places like Mycenae and Terence and Troy, they're all gone. Which is why I like Sharon Zuckerman's idea of an internal rebellion that took out the upper class and spared the lower class. To me, that makes much more sense. If a group like the Sea Peoples or the Israelites had come in, we know they would have torched everything. So I like this, you know, creative destruction, shall we say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even though these were prosperous trading groups, they all talk about fighting with each other. So they were warlike peoples, the Egyptians and the Hittites. And was that going on that whole period? Uh, sorry, the fighting between yeah, everyone? Yeah, they fought with each other. I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have all sorts, that's one of the things that I study is the military history of that period. They're all busy fighting everybody. In fact, that is what part of the problem is. The, remember I mentioned the Chardana that we thought might come from Sardinia? We've actually already met them. They've been around for 100 years at this point, and they're fighting both for and against the Egyptians earlier. They're mercenaries. So, yeah. So, yes, everybody is fighting. Uh, even the Egyptians and the Hittites have a very famous battle, the Battle of Kadesh. And at the end, they sign peace treaties and then marry each other's daughters, and everybody's happy for a while. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know that in Israel, they have found glass that somebody made. I don't know who made it, but they made the glass of some kind of enemies in in Israel, they found the mines that the polymagic there. Exactly. I'm saying to me, somebody installs the Egyptian glass and made it in Israel. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is one sign that there were trading at that time. 
Absolutely, right. So you've got glass in, in both regions. Maybe the technology is spreading. But the tar, the bitumen as you're talking about, right, is highly prized by absolutely everybody. They're trading all sorts of raw materials as well as finished goods. Yeah, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you had a question. Yeah, what's your take on the theory that the Exodus 10 plays in the Bible as a result of the volcanic explosion of an island in the Mediterranean? The effect of that explosion, the blood red sea and everything else that's described as a result of that. And that shook us to the Egyptians, they read the Jews for the Right, so the question is the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea of, of the Red Sea and the, all the other ten plagues and all that is because of an eruption of a volcanic island in Greece, right, Santorini to be specific. Right, uh, this is um, a popular theory. The short answer for me is it doesn't work. And it doesn't work very simply the eruption of Santorini, we now know from radiocarbon dates, took place at 1628 BC, which is about 200 years earlier than we had thought. There's no way it can have caused anything to do with the eruption unless, like the parting of the Red Sea, it held still for 200 years. There's no way. So the eruption of Santorini is 17th century. Exodus, even with the biblical account, is 15th century, and Exodus from the archaeological is 13th century. So it's a really tempting theory, but it doesn't work because there's too big of a chronological gap. And yet that's what everybody thinks also contributed to the end of the Late Bronze Age. I'm seeing this on the internet again and again and again. This guy wrote 1177 BC. He doesn't even mention the eruption of Santorini. Like, yeah, that's because it's 600 years too early. Right, so same thing here. Uh, it would be nice because it fits everything, but the chronology is too. The only way, <coughs> excuse me, the only way you could do it, there is a theory that the story of the Exodus as we have it in the Bible is a folk memory of the expulsion of the Hyksos from Egypt, which did take place 16th century or so. So if that, if the Exodus is a memory of the Hyksox explosion, then you're back in the time period of the eruption. And then maybe you could link it all, but you've got to do some pretty fast dancing to get it to work. So, and I don't hold with that. I, I don't think the Exodus is a folk memory of the Hyksos explosion, but that's pretty much the only way you're going to get it to work. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. I can't hear you. <coughs> Sorry. Fair to say that the Israelites are really a subset of Canaanites. The Israelites as a subset of the Canaanites. Yeah, that's one of the theories. Right, absolutely. <clears throat> There's any number of theories here, and this is a when I teach archaeology of Israel, that's my favorite question on the final exam. Right, just go through the theories. Right, because you've you've got the peaceful infiltration, you've got the revolting peasants, uh, and you've got the Canaanites and Israelites are either brothers or cousins, which pisses everybody off. Right, so, and this comes down to like Finkelstein and some of the people with the DNA have been arguing that. Um, I don't think it's been answered yet. It's a definite possibility. 
One of my problems with all of this, again, is even if the Israelites are up in the highlands, we don't see that much evidence for them, and I would want the Egyptians to be mentioning them, and they don't. So that's why I don't see them having come in, say, in the 15th century and having just been there. But still, you know, if we were able to answer this question, we would have answered it long ago. So I don't even know how we're going to come up with a solution because I don't think straight archaeology is going to answer it. It may be that we need another cemetery or two with DNA and that, that, that may be uh, able to do it. Should we take one more? One more. Uh, louder? Louder? One year. In other words, when you say 1177, yes. is that a literary device? Yes, <laughs> it is. 1177, the year of the civilization. Yes, you heard me say it, it took a century. <laughs> yes. Um, what I wanted to do was to give people something that they could grab onto. So my best example would be that we Frequently, we say that the Roman Empire collapsed in 476. We know, of course, it didn't. It took most of the fifth century, but people grab on to 476 as a shorthand, an academic shorthand. So the way I was thinking was 476, it was like an SAT question. 476 is to the end of the Roman Empire as 1177 is to the end of the late Bronze Age. It stands for the whole collapse. But yes, not everything collapses that one year but it is the time that the Sea Peoples come the second year. So for me, yes, it's a literary device, which if nothing else, I wanted the general populace that was reading this book, many of whom have never heard the late Bronze Age before, at least they could come away with, this happened, you know, 1177, okay, I kinda know where it happened. But yes, yes, thank you, good question.